This podcast has been made possible through funding from Fans for Diversity. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the FEH podcast, another episode of the Youth Panel Roundtable. Um, I'm your host, Sam, and uh, first we'll talk about kind of what we're talking about on this episode. Um, we're going to be started talking about kind of um, a few issues around women's sport, uh, the perception of women's sport and women's football in particular. We're also going to talk about the, a recent LGBT open letter to the media industry. And finally, is the, the title of this episode is Ace Week. And I've got a couple of aces up my sleeve to uh, join in me. We've got the first piece returning from the last roundtable. It's Ryan, our education officer, as well as our coordinator, Beatrice. Hello. Hello. Hey, good to be back. Yeah. Now, how, how's everyone's kind of week been, or I guess month since the last time we recorded? Yeah. Uh, it's been, I mean, the last time we all spoke was last week, so it's kind of like, there's not a lot, I feel like normally we would have like the whole catch-up thing, but we've, yeah. <laughs> we've kind of all been in conversation, like we've had like three meetings in the last week, so... Well, we had a, um, a youth panel and kind of uh, main team football versus homophobia um, social, didn't we, last Friday, which was which was actually good fun. We learned a lot about each other and lots of lots of funny conversations. Yeah. I think we learned a lot about Ryan, <laughs> <laughs> but that maybe that's maybe that's a topic for a future episode. <laughs> um, and also, I definitely need to get Amy on to do a true back or impression on the podcast because yes, <laughs> at some point that needs to happen. But, but, uh, I think, and one thing that we actually talked about in the meeting last week was the that open letter from sports media LGBT, and and that's kind of one of the first things I want to talk about. Is it's something that's kind of close to my heart, being a journalist, and we touched on it a bit on the last episode as well with the whole talk with the Sky Sports sackings. But this is something totally separate. It's talking about, and John Holmes is brilliant. Uh, the way he worded it was absolutely like, better than I could. But it's the idea of like the speculation and the really unhelpful uh, reporting of LGBT issues and in gen- and specifically the kind of basically rumours and speculation around who's out, who's like who's gay and all this kind of thing and the headlines basically being there is a gay footballer in England. It's like, yeah, I mean out of four thousand people, yes, there is going to be one of them kind of thing. And it's just very Maybe unhelpful. One or two. <laughs> yeah. Like just by pure mathematics. Like yeah. you've got a and yeah, it's one of those things that's really frustrating to see. And I know, I know Beatrice, you signed the letter, and like Ryan, I know you'd have seen it as well. And yeah, just, I don't get what it achieves, particularly. So I guess for people who might not have seen um, what this open letter was in response to, it was a tabloid. Um, I now forget which one because, of course, I don't read any of those things. <laughs> but there was a headline, wasn't there, saying, you know, there's a, a Premier League footballer who's terrified to come out and is, you know, calling the authorities, like FA, Premier League, kind of begging them for support because he's so scared to come out and you know I think the sports media LGBT and the rest of us as kind of the the queer football family and also non-queer football family came together to say this this is really unhelpful way of reporting these issues um that you know you, as you said Sam rightly so like you see so many of these headlines which are anonymized talking about you know using that language of scared frightened you know kind of t- horrible environment and it just creates this image that football is a terrible environment and we know that there certainly are issues but you know the people that I've spoken to the people we've spoken to on the podcast we know there are so many gay and lesbian people I mean predominantly gay people never get 
kind of <laughs> spoken about in media, um, especially those that are playing kind of down in the level, lower levels. We know that they're playing and it's, it's disappointing that um, tabloids don't often um, profile those people and their experiences rather than just go for the shock factor of here's this anonymous figure who is terrified and scared and can't come out and you know all these things it it feels um, unconstructive and as though it's painting the it's building everything up so when a player does come out there's going to be even more pressure around that because this whole picture this whole environment has been created to be a uh, uh, scary terrifying environment which you know in some elements it will be but I think it's just all unhelpful isn't it yeah, it seems to amplify that sort of negativity yeah. that yeah. will be that, that is in some aspects of the football community mm-hmm. around uh, queer people and it just kind of amplifies that and as you said it, it makes it an even harder sort of environment to be able to come out in and feel comfortable in and it, yeah, it, it does so little to actually talk about the real issues. It kind of uses them as a sort of a way to kind of have a headline rather than actually being able to actually reflect and consider why it is a difficult environment for a gay player to come out or why people haven't done so far. And as you rightfully said as well, there's so many examples of gay and lesbian and queer footballers who have either retired or are playing in lower levels or particularly ignored as I think we're going to go on to later in the episode about women in women's football. And there's so many people you could talk to, to get an understanding of that and write a piece sort of looking at those issues as to why the environment is that way, rather than kind of almost stoking the fuel and making it, it it did feel these articles like ramping up and preparing for someone to come out so you can have an even bigger headline and make an even bigger story about it which is probably not the sort of environment that these people or this person who wants to come out in uh in like men's football uh it's probably not helping them to be able to feel comfortable doing so and you're achieving nothing other than making sort of clickbaity headline articles. Yeah, I think I, I spoke to Tamika Gallup, who's Australian international, like a couple months ago for a university project. Uh, and she says the reason she found it easier being out as a women's footballer is that it doesn't feel like it has to be a big deal. It doesn't feel like, like when she, she didn't, almost didn't even have to really come out, she just eventually posted a picture with a girlfriend and that, and who's now her wife and that, and that's, all, and there, was, there wasn't loads of media attention around it. There wasn't all this stuff. There wasn't like speculation beforehand. Like it was literally, it didn't have to be a big deal. And I think that's one of the things that's worth mentioning. Like obviously, yes, it will be a big deal when a, a footballer comes out a first time, a player comes out while still playing in 30 years. And oh, still only the second in the history of the professional game in this country. But the the speculation that goes into it and the as you said, it's just not helpful at all, and it does just fuel that fire. And it's not even like they will then report on reasons of examples of homophobia. It's not like they'll then give the reasons. I won't say when uh, there's a Chelsea game and you've got the Red Boys chant going on. The tabloids never report on that, and and or every single Brighton game where there's 
homophobic chants is never reported on. Instead, they act really surprised, like when there's there's a gay footballer or whatever it might be. And yeah, it is really frustrating because at least address the issue. If you're going to call out, oh, there's a gay footballer who's scared. Why is he scared? But what is what is it about this environment that's making him scared? And what examples can we look to? Maybe in other sports like rugby, where there's openly gay male players that are still playing, and it, all other sports really. Like it's just football at the moment. It's so true. And I saw a tweet over the weekend, and I do forget the name, so I have to apologise. Um, but someone had been contacted by the BBC. This is a slight tangent, but it does link in vaguely. <laughs> someone had been contacted by the BBC to kind of give their thoughts on the government's announcement on the GRA. And they were going to do it. And then at short notice, um, kind of the person that they were speaking to at the BBC said, oh, you know, um, policy is that the BBC has to have a cis woman on to also discuss this. Yeah, I, I yeah, both of your reactions are the same as mine. And, you know, there was some really interesting commentary underneath saying, you know, well, it's so frustrating, isn't it? Because why does that mean, why does this, having a cis woman on to also discuss this topic means that they have to be someone who is very anti-trans and who is going to be very gender critical and hold these kinds of views. You know, why can, why could the BBC not get on a cis woman who is, you know, kind of understanding of trans issues and very supportive of trans people and sees trans women as women, trans men as men. And I kind of feel that there's a link there with this story as well. You know, why can media tabloids, okay, if there's no professional play, male players that want to speak to them about their sexuality. Actually, can they not find allies within the game? You know, Sam, I know you've um, spoken to Martin Sordell a lot. And, you know, th there's going to be so many other players, professional players within the game. You know, the media also need to step up and have a chat and find those allies who can also share their experiences, but also help, help set the scene for players and for other people in the game as well. Yeah, and, and at the very least, have an LGBT person reporting it, uh, and it's and, I, and like there's there's not there's not a shortage of LGBT sports journalists. Like there's less than there should be, and less than I'd ideally like there to be. But you've got like that's the, I think that's the benefit that, for example, I'm not saying Sky Sports angels by any means, but the fact that they've got John Holmes there who does a lot of their LGBT stories, or at least the hands a lot of their LGBT stories means that when they do do something on this you can tell it's come from a place of uh, a place of care and a place of sensitivity to issues and i think that's one of the main things is if if a paper has an lgbt reporter to report on these stories at least if they're going to be done in a more uh, sensitive way i guess is the best way of putting it and it's done from the perspective of someone as much as like it's not the same as a sports journalist you're still in a very male dominated environment so you that's centered around football centered around sport so you can give a little bit of a taste of what that's like even if it's not quite the same as being a professional footballer and, and as you said there's retired professional footballers thomas hitzberger um the first that comes to mind for me robbie rogers over in the us um there's a fair few i believe i'm not sure if he still plays but i believe there was someone who was out in norway and was in the at the top of the professional game, and he and he's one of the few that's been out. And so there's loads of people you can contact, and there's people that are really willing to talk about this kind of thing. Even even when you look at the if you look in the NFL, if you want to take someone from the NFL as well, because it's such a similar in terms of what the NFL means in America compared to what the Premier League means here, it's it's such a similar outlook and such a similar 
basically you're looking at the same thing just in another country and so there's people there's so many out uh, lgbt uh nfl players current and retired so yeah there's so many options as you said of people you can talk to and get an opinion other than oh they're scared like and yeah of course they're scared have you seen have you listened to what some chants are like have you listened you, you, it, racism hasn't been like we've still got increase in racism. So how are we? How do we stand a chance against this kind of new form? And as Marvin Zordel has said to me before, is that homophobia is almost more accepted than racism. No one are completely, it, everyone accepts racism in bad. And if you are racist in any way, then you're a bad person. That's just a like. There's no kind of black and white area. Whereas for a lot of homophobia, there seems to be a black and white of like, oh, is that homophobic? Is that this? Is that that? And again, maybe there's something that needs some kind of education on what is actually homophobic and what's, I don't know, like, I know people like to use the word banter, but it's not at the end of the day, but, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think writing articles in that way without that sort of balance and nuance to actually, as you said, talk to queer people or be written by queer people, all you're doing is siding with that hostile environment and almost taking a claim that it is either not an issue or it's something that won't be changed. When we all know there has been progression in different aspects of football, as you said, with uh, however bad some of the abuse that is uh, thrown uh, at football games now, it is still progressed forward over the last few decades. It's terrible and it's increasing again which obviously is even worse having having progressed to then sort of regress but you you're just siding with that sort of view that things won't change or can't change or this is the environment rather than saying how do we change that environment or asking those questions to how do we create that better environment because it is something that involves everyone it's not just the fans at the ground who uh make homophobic comments it's the people sitting next to them and it's the journalists writing the articles about it and choosing to write in a tone that either doesn't sort of condemn those actions or even in ways subtly supports them or allows there to be room to kind of perceive it as a maybe it's okay as you said maybe it's banter rather than just saying this is homophobic or this creates this sort of toxicity. And we like it, everyone sort of involved in the game has to sort of take a role within that. And journalists are massively important in that. We, you can't watch uh, every football game there is just like, on your own. You can't get to every game. So you can't just be there in person. At the moment, you can't be there in person at all for the most part. So a lot of the information that we get comes from journalists, from reporters, and from the media. And that's why it's so. this is such a crucial issue because without any sort of accountability or change within the sort of media industry around LGBTQ issues, particularly within sport where, as we've said, it can be a very hostile environment, or a very unbalanced environment as well with uh, the sort of lack of LGBTQ representation, lack of, uh, lack of sort of, uh, uh, of representation across the board within it. 
that it is so important that we change that in order to affect every other aspect of the game, it, to affect the actual actions that are taking place by people. Uh, yeah. Agree, and for me, I think the word that you've just used towards the end there is absolutely key, isn't it? It's representation. You know, if you don't have those different voices around the table being part of discussions, you're never going to have those um, points of view put across, and you're never going to have that sympathy necessarily. You know, as much as we all try to make sure that we're kind of um, considerate, understanding, and you know, aware of issues that other people face. You know, I will never face certain issues of discrimination and you know things that other people face that you know me as a white cis woman experiences uh, middle class woman as well let's face it so um, i think representation is so ultimately key isn't it yeah and, and that's the thing that i have to be very aware of because as much as i'm pushing this uh, diversity in the journalism industry i only really cover one of those like diverse sectors i only i'm lgbt so i can represent that but there's so many other issues which I can't speak for. And even, and even in my article last week, I made a point of uh, when it came down to John wanting me to talk about like, the kind of difference between pansexual and bisexual. I can't tell anyone what a pansexual feels because I'm not, that's not me. So instead I linked to a different story where they did explain this. And, and it's that kind of thing. It's be aware of what you, what you have lived experience on, what you know about, and then where you don't know about certain things bring those people into the conversation and and that's why that again it, again for this episode as well i i said to you both before we started recording i'm going to be the kind of the, the ignorant one who doesn't know as much as they probably should about asexuality and we'll get onto that later but it's being aware of where your lack of knowledge comes in and being aware of where your lack of lived experience comes in as well like you can be as knowledgeable as possible and read as much as possible and say that like, I've done a lot of reading on like all the Black Lives Matter stuff in the last few months. I'm still not going to have a, a better idea of it than someone who's lived it. And like, yeah, just be, and people need to be aware of that really. Um, I think that kind of brings us on to the next point is about the perception of women's sport. And especially again, we talked about it last time with um, the Sky Sports sackings and like the whole thing that went towards Alex Scott and this whole and I think that kind of draws into it is this one of the comments I saw, which I found particularly strange, was this idea that Alex Scott can't comment on men's sport because she's never played in the Premier League or whatever it is. And to me, that's just so baffling. Because you listen to journalists who have never even played sport in the first place, or you listen to uh, pundits who haven't played in the Premier League. Like the pundits that got the sack, half of them hadn't played in the Premier League at all either. So and and I think the perception of women's sport is that, as, and I have said it in a tweet, like mistakes in the women's game to people is evidence to a lack of quality, whereas mistakes in the men's game is just mistakes, and that and that that's the perception that really gets to me is that whole idea of like oh this one this like for example a nine goal game Chelsea versus Bristol City I believe it was. Um, that was seen as, oh, this is means that women's football is bad when we literally had a 9-1 game or whatever it was. Was it 9-0 Southampton versus Leicester last season? Yeah. Yeah, that was no, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so like we literally had, we had Bayern Munich beat Barcelona 8-2 for Christ's sake. Like, are Barcelona that much of a lack of quality? Like, <laughs> it, it, I, it's very baffling to me that people's minds go there. Like, oh, that, that's an evidence of lack of quality, not just one of those games. 
Mm. Yeah, exactly. And it it really, like a scoreline doesn't kind of suggest there was anything. Like my side won 12 nil at the weekend. That, like when I read that comment, it's like, it, like it doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't affect like the quality that sort of you're playing at or as you said, and the mistake doesn't equal sort of poor quality. And like if you main re if if people are claiming that because there's a big scoreline in women's football that it makes it any less than or any less of a high quality, then they really have no idea what's going on. Scorelines like that happen across the football world. Like as you were talking about uh, Bayern Munich, the one against eight 0 against Schalke the other week. Like it happens all the time. Often they're just one-off occasions where games just happen differently. And it is just such a sort of baseless sort of accusation to throw around that because you lose, you're low quality. It happens like that across every single level of football, big scorelines eventually occur. Right? Definitely. Like quite often in men's teams as well, um, you, you kind of some of the biggest teams, you've got that one man player who, you know, is the star of the show and the team is built around that one player. And, you know, you have all these comments saying, oh, if he wasn't there, you know, it'd be bad to this player's carrying the team or whatever. And, you know, if women's football had that, it'd be well, this just shows how the lack of quality within women's football, you only have one good player in a team sort of thing. It's so interesting, like the difference between the dialogue with the, with the, with the games, you know, men and women's games is just so different. And it's such clear sexism, just really is, you know, you just see it and you think, well, there's nothing else for this. You are just having a look at anything to comment on just to show that women's football is not as good as men's football because that's that's what you want to paint it as and you can't see it in any other way, unfortunately. Yeah, it's a purely misogynistic argument as well. It's, as, as we said, it's completely baseless and just and actually I think it almost links back to what you're saying with uh, sort of people commenting that Alex Scott couldn't make judgments about men's football then if that's true then why is the reverse of any sort of man who's watched a football game able to comment whatever he likes about women's football like like the only reason why that would be true is if is if you're misogynistic if you don't like ultimately football the reason for one of its some of its popularity is that in the absolute basis of it it can be played watched and sort of understood by anyone so it is just entirely based on just pure misogyny that anyone would have that sort of that that view that is not not the same it's yeah just insane yeah and it's one of those things with like with yeah, as I said, like, it is one of those things where in football mistakes happen all the time, but in women's football it shows that they got lack of quality. And I remember, I remember someone. It was quite funny. There was this video of like I can't remember where it was, but it was just like one of those ones where it was like mistake after mistake after mistake in men's football, and some and someone retweeted it basically going, oh, "I wish I, well, I wish we had this kind of quality in women's football and stuff like that." And like, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hide the fact that there is a. Diff, there's a gap in quality but what do you expect when the women's game has only been professional for 20 years what do you expect when women men get swept up in academies from the age of eight and they get that's their full-time job from the age of eight 
is to play football, whereas women have to, even when they're, even when they're in the highest levels, they often still go to university. So it's still not their full-time focus. They still, and it's only like, I think only in the second and first division, is it actually a full-time profession? I don't, I don't even know if in the championship, every single woman who plays in the, the championship is full-time. I'm pretty sure it's only the Super League where 100% of the athletes are full-time athletes. So yes, there is a gap. But also you're the same kind of person who ironically says that Sunday League is better than the Premier League. So like, it, it, it's just like, it, it, there's so many gaps in this argument that it's like almost not worth having the argument, but uh, I'll have it anyway. Um, yeah. yeah. It's so true. And I... I've spoken about this a little bit before in our interview that we did with Anita Asante for this interview, uh, for the podcast. Um, I used to work as a football development officer and I would kind of look after all areas of football within a particular region. And it was just a joy to work with so many clubs that were so devoted to developing girls football as much as boys football and who wanted to make sure that you know, kind of the opportunities that they were offering their boys from the age of four. They wanted to make sure there were as many girls coming in. You know, they didn't want it to be a sport that seemed inaccessible. And, you know, they were constantly asking me questions about, right, you know, we we have a situation, we have a conundrum where we've got all these girls teams and we'll send a message out in the parents' WhatsApp group to say, you know, um, we, we need a coach for this team. Who's up for it? And quite a lot of the you know, mums who would be in this group would say, oh, I'll see if my husband wants to do it. And they were saying, no, 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 actually, we, we want you to do it. We want you to feel able to step up. And it's, you know, it is really interesting kind of how there's so many different kind of levels of, you know, women not feeling perhaps as though they can access the game or still feeling as though, you know, actually better ask the man to see if he wants to step up and coach the team. But for me, the fact that clubs are having those conversations right at the early years about, right, we want a new pitch a new facility that we're going to develop girls football and we want to make sure we've got top coaches I wonder in 20 years time if we have this similar conversation how far will the difference be from each other you know actually if, if girls have that same access to quality coaching facilities training matches you know will there really be that much of a difference I think it'd be fascinating to see yeah, yeah I think I think you're to- totally right there as well like it is really good to see that sort of progress and the, the yeah the reason that there is a sort of perceived gap between like top professional men's and women's football is because of the sort of lack of resources and you said the length of time that's been given like, I, I worked as a coach for five years uh, when, I, when I was uh, and predominantly worked with like younger children from the ages of like five through eleven and Frankly, the, the the sort of uh, the gender bias in the fact that the vast majority of the kids were like were boys, like had nothing to do with the quality of the players. Generally, the out, out of the few people I coached, some of the best players were some of the girls, and so it shows it's especially at that young age, which is really pivotal in your sort of football development. There's no difference in. Uh, ability based on your gender and the problem then lies in the resources you use to kind of support a player's development and as you said when you don't have those resources it's harder to develop and harder for people to get an opportunity to develop and I think there's also sort of wider sort of 
issues within society that kind of play a massive role in that and the sort of societal expectation and sort of misogyny within society and as well toxic masculinity that we've been kind of talking about the sort of that kind of utilizes misogyny as a sort of tool to kind of try and uh, suppress sort of development in the women's game or talk badly about it that like when, uh, when I was uh, like growing up the best player in my primary school was a girl in my primary school she was absolutely phenomenal was better by miles than any of the guys in our school she was playing for Arsenal's academy and was absolutely like I have never at a sort of even as a coach for five years never seen a player as good as she was at her age and then as we were sort of growing up going to secondary sort of level her dad kind of forced her out of playing football because of the sort of need to travel for her to play at that sort of really high level and prioritised his sort of older son playing a really low level of Sunday league just because his view was it didn't matter as much because she was a girl. And those were sort of issues we're sort of facing on a sort of wider societal level, but also kind of need to be addressed. And I think, as Beatrice was saying, the way that clubs are doing that by actually talking and communicating with parents about it and getting a sort of getting more sort of women involved in the sort of coaching side as well, more active engagement from parents in women's uh, football and girls football is so pivotal to changing that mentality so that we can actually, again, create that environment where there is so much more support in order to allow players to develop. Because otherwise, with with nothing, if you only have that sort of wider scale action, it's still the impact is going to be limited if we don't address the grassroots sort of side of it and the issues of it. And yeah, and that, that is the sort of part that is, I think so key in changing that. But yeah, as you said, it's so good to see that we are, even though it's sort of 20 years too late, like we are starting to, to as a sort of wider football community and within professional clubs, particularly, making that effort really needs really needs to be made. I think one of the one of the clubs I've noticed in particular over this summer was Aston Villa. And they've really I don't I don't know if it's just because I've seen more of it because Sam Timms has been retweeting it onto my timeline nonstop. <laughs> but I I do feel like Aston Villa have really made a push. And like the club the higher clubs always have like the Arsenal's, the Chelsea's and stuff like that, they always have. But to see a club that's not, obviously they're a big club, but they're not quite at the same financial level as an Arsenal, as a Chelsea. But they are still prioritising the women's game and putting a lot of money into the women's game. And they just got promoted last year and they're actually making an effort. Instead of going, they could easily have gone, all right, the men's team need the money, so throw all the money into the men's team. When really it's such a minimal amount of money that's needed to fund the women's teams in comparison to the men's teams because the wages are so much less, the transfer fees are so much less, the, the just in general, renting out a ground is so much less. Like everything to do with the women's game has such a... Like it'll probably take not even 5% of the... Like, take 5% of the budget you take from men's teams and put it into a women's team, and that could make the world a difference to the women's team and have no impact whatsoever on the men's team. 
and uh, and yeah, so it's good to see like Villa doing that. And there's a few other clubs uh, uh, attempting to do that as well. Yeah. I think for the uh, focusing on the women's Super League and uh, uh, British women's football, I think it's really good to see the sort of level of transfers we've had this summer with just a host of players coming into the league and showing that it is uh, such a competitive level. Like you wouldn't have the sheer number of World Cup winners coming in to the Women's Super League if it wasn't a good quality level, right? Uh, and so many of those players are being drawn by the sort of allure of sort of European football as well with uh, with with sort of Olympic Lyon's sort of absolute dominance in the last few years and people actually making an effort to kind of go, yeah, let's compete with them. Let's try and like challenge this team. And it just shows how... Like, firstly, how good a sort of level it is, and how teams are willing to make that financial sort of input, which is something that has massively been missing in recent years. And as you said, is so because of the sort of way how the sort of the sort of exponential financial growth of the men's game over recent years means that it is, as you said a minimal amount comparatively does the sort of world a difference. And like I was reading um, Lucy Bronze, who's just a phenomenal player and her comments about returning to Manchester City after having spent a, uh, spent a few seasons at Lyon and saying that one of the big reasons she wanted to come back was she wanted to challenge for European silverware at City and for an English club. And I think it just proves to show how far we are coming or how far we've come and while also highlighting how far we've still got to go we've still got to make that sort of it should be a sort of mainstream and that again is uh, something that needs to be done on a sort of higher financial level with sort of media coverage and increasing the sort of amount that we can and the ease at which we can view women's football yeah. And I think for me, like, it's so, I completely agree with you both, it's so exciting, like, the high-profile people that have um, come to British, um, or the other yeah, Women's Super League, and I have to confess, I've kind of fallen out with of love with the men's professional game recently, but then, you know, kind of follow the women's game a little bit, but then seeing just all of these names come through, I'm like, oh, um, I have to, I have to get to games. I have to get watching this. This is so exciting. And I think that's also in thanks to, you know, um, it being televised, the World's Cup being televised, these names, you know, Sam Kerr now going to Chelsea, you know, a whole host of um, American footballers <laughs> coming over to various clubs as well. These are getting to be more household names and suddenly you see, oh, this player's joining this club. That's really exciting, actually. I'm going to go take my kids, uh, I'm going to do this. I, I also, my wish for the women's game as well is that it's, it reflects on its journey as well. You know, I'm always I'm always concerned with women's football that we always put it on a pedestal and we think, you know, women's football is the shining example. You know, it can do no wrong. It's so inclusive. It's got all this great stuff. And it's certainly different to the men's game and there seems to be a different environment, different atmosphere to it. But I think we still do have issues of homophobia. And, you know, there's certainly a lot of issues around stereotypes as well that, you know, people see women's football as, you know, a whole bunch of lesbians playing when you know it's really not that case and that obviously it has its own issues that it brings with but you know we also know that there's 
going to be issues of racism as well. Um, you know, we've certainly been talking about that a lot on um, the podcast episodes with Andy and I. And I just... Yeah, as I say, my wish for football is that it is honest with itself and recognises the issues. And whilst it's scary to then say, oh, well, perhaps there is an issue with racism or, you know, kind of there are issues here, because then that potentially gives it a prime target for people to say, well, that means women's football is terrible. We shouldn't be supporting it. Actually, I think it will stand it in better stead in the long term to really address these issues, get it right, make sure that it can be that inclusive space and that, you know, accepting space where issues are brought up and dealt with appropriately before it gets too big and it hasn't looked at these issues strongly enough. Yeah, and, and I think that that's where women's football can be better. Like, I don't think men, women's football should be aiming to be on the same level as men's football in every regard. In this regard, women's football is already better and should continue to be better and should continue to progress at a faster pace. Because it, it is younger, for one. The professional game's a lot younger. So it hasn't got the hundred years of toxic masculinity in, into it. And, yeah, like, I, I think it was on the... Um, one of the intersectionality panels at uh, Football Pride with Hayley Annette uh, uh, was Chloe Morgan and jo- Joanne Evans, I'm tempted to say. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I don't know. I, I've, uh, I tr- I've done well to remember the three out of the four. <laughs> I, um, my mind's completely gone. But yeah, they, they did a, an amazing talk in terms of addressing that and not aiming to be like the men's football, aiming to have its own identity and its own thing. On the same level as the men's football, yes, but the same thing as the men's football, no. Because do, do we really want to recreate that and then have to, like, again, do the battles that we're now having with the men's football 20 years down the line again with the women's football kind of thing? There's so, yeah, cause there's so much of men's football is problematic. Like, as we've said before, the homophobia, racism is still so mass, like, pervasive throughout men's football. And even sort of on a wider level, the sort of just financial side of men's football is so, when you actually look at the sort of scale of it, it's just mind blowing. And, and it's those sort of things as well, that are totally parts of the women's game that can be sort of developed where people can what can continue to watch high quality football without having to kind of, auction off like a, your organs to try and pay for a season ticket as, as some clubs in, in, in men's football particularly have, have made it so in recent years and there's so much that is problematic with men's football that as you said is such a golden opportunity for women's football to kind of say these are the sort of problems with this sport with, with the men's sort of game and kind of just show how much better they already are you say and just leap on that and step forward and I think as, you, as Beatrice said that sort of reflection is so important and it's really good that it's sort of starting to happen and it's earlier without as Sam said that sort of entrenched sort of level of, of sort of toxic masculinity and toxicity in general around the sport and yeah it's so sort of hopeful which is really nice to have in, in football <laughs> at any level or any aspect at the moment Very yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I definitely feel that that's a place where women's football can have its own identity and can be better than men's football. And it already is, to be honest. In terms of inclusion, it's already better. But it, and it, but it needs, as Beatrice said, needs to be reflected on where it can, again, be better than that. Ne never settling for good enough, basically, is the, is, is the kind of idea. Never settling for being better than this very low bar that's been set. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and kind of talking of that and kind of like different representation and stuff like that is we got two people who represent something that, again, I haven't got a lot of uh, uh, personal, ex definitely haven't got lived experience in, but in terms of knowing people. And I'm, uh, I said to you before, Beatrice, I have a group of uh, ace people from my wrestling uh, friendships, but not the ones that I can talk to and ask questions to. Because it, it's one of those things where you, as me and Amy said about bisexuality on the last podcast, is you don't ask questions like the idea that because someone's queer or someone identifies something different to you, that suddenly entitles you to ask a million and five questions about everything. And it's just not the case. Like we've got the same rights to like basically say that's none of your business as everyone else. But yeah, it's definitely something that I need. It's one of the parts of my kind of not queer identities that I need a bit more knowledge on. So I'm really glad that you two have joined me we've got ace week at the end of the month um so just yeah i kind of want to talk to you about everything to do with that and what because one of the things that i heard like there's what people don't understand is there's different levels of being asexual there's different like almost like it's the same as anything any queer identity there's different people see themselves as different identities within that so you guys want to talk about maybe a few stuff like that where a few misconceptions a few things that are just assumed about asexuality mm. Yeah, I think one of the big assumptions is people see the word sort of asexuality and kind of can, whether they know it or not, can kind of extrapolate a little bit. We've seen sexual and then the, the prefix a and just uh, assume asexual, ah, non-sexual. And that is generally an aspect of it. Asexuality can be uh, just not feeling sexual attraction. Uh, but there's also... Uh, the aspects of asexuality where it is in itself a spectrum that there's as you said there's kind of different positions within that spectrum of people who are uh, entirely asexual and no feel no sexual attraction at all where there's uh, different sexualities within that spectrum where some people can be something like demisexual whereas you feel sexual attraction after sort of developing a strong emotional bond with someone or gray sexual which is just has many sort of different sexualities within it where you occasionally feel sexual attraction and in specific ways like reciprocal where people only feel sexual attraction when they know someone else feels it towards them and there's such a wide range of different identities within the spectrum that it really can't be boiled down to just asexual equals no sexual attraction because there's so much more nuance and almost diversity within that spectrum and I think for me one of the biggest things that gets confused with uh, asexuality is uh, the confusion with asexuality and sort of aromanticism which is or aromanticism depends on how you say it, uh, not feeling romantic attraction as I think people sometimes confuse sexual and romantic attraction and assume for there to be one, there has to be the other, or for there to be, uh, for there not to be one, there can't be the other. 
when you can see romantic and sexual attractions as two entirely different things alongside other types of attraction. And that for me is one of the biggest parts uh, or biggest misconceptions that sort of people have about asexuality. Yeah, I think that's a really great rundown, actually. Um, you know, hopefully people weren't wanting an easy answer about it. <laughs> you know, because um, I think, right, yeah, I, I can't really say it any better, right? <laughs> Ultimately, the idea of asexuality is experiencing no sexual attraction. But even within that, yeah, there's such a wide variety. And I think you know, what, what the asexual community has allowed the queer community, but also the rest of, you know, everyone else <laughs> um, in kind of the world, let's say, has been the, the idea of the separation of sexual attraction and romantic attraction, you know, the idea that these can be um, the same for a lot of people. And, you know, probably for a lot of folks that that's how it works, you know, they are sexually attracted to the same people that they're romantically attracted to and probably happy days for them <laughs> you know there will be um quite a few people who are romantically attracted to other folks and who they're sexually attracted to um unfortunately sexual attraction is a very difficult thing for me to say so i'm gonna stumble over it a lot of times <laughs> too many of the similar sounds <laughs> um but yeah, like I think it's really exciting that a community can open up that conversation and start to help other people see it in different ways. Uh, I actually saw quite a funny meme the other day, um, which isn't a sentence I usually say, <laughs> but it was uh, kind of talking about, you know, the struggles that asexual people have, and certainly this is what I have, you know, of... Um, you know, do I experience um, a romanticism or is it just pansexuality? I, oh, yeah, so pansex, um, panromantic, sorry, feelings. I don't know what that is. <laughs> you know, for me, I don't think I could tell you what romantic attraction feels like because I don't know how that differs from my friendships with friends. You know, I've got some very, very strong relationships with a lot of friends and a lot of people in my life. And I think... For me, and certainly I notice in my interactions with my parents, you know, some of the misconceptions that they've felt is, will I be lonely? You know, well, does that mean I'm not going to have anyone in my life? And, you know, when they say I won't have anyone in my life, they kind of mean more of a you won't have a romantic partner in your life. And I said, I don't know. Honestly, I, I don't know what that's going to look like. I, you know, at the moment, I don't have anyone. But what I do has, have is really strong friendships and, you know, a whole network and a, a constellation of people who support and love me and I support and love them. And that feeds me, that gives me energy. Those are really key people in my life. I don't know if I need more than that or want more than that. Uh, who knows? That's that's a that's a journey that I'm going on, but I think you know that that's what um, a, a bit of a rambly answer. That's what asexuality has opened up for me and other people when I have conversations with other people. You know, those discussions around what is romantic attraction, um, but it is also really a blooming nightmare to then identify. Well, what do I experience? <laughs> I think that's the thing that people and Ryan actually touched on it on the last episode when we talked about bisexuality is this idea that and I love this phrase that you used Ryan is like it's not a, it's not a hard thing to understand but it's an even less hard thing to accept and I think that's kind of the general feelings around basically every queer identity and everything to do but it, it, and it's the same thing with me here it was like obviously I, I, I being bisexual 
it, it, I, I can, I can understand to a point for the point of like when people talk about, oh, so you're just attracted to everybody. It's like, no, that's not what that means. So I can almost understand from that point of like, there is different levels to what you're feeling and there's different, and, and definitely the separation of romantic attraction and sexual attraction. And that's definitely something that I can relate to myself because it's something that I had the process of going through. Um, but obviously I, I never reached a point where I was like, oh, the sexual attraction doesn't exist or doesn't exist to a certain extent and whatever else. That's one thing I wanted to ask well, because I, I, I don't actually know if this is entirely true, but this is the place to ask, because there's some asexual people will still have sex and will still enjoy sex. It's just that it, they don't necessarily get the same kind of attraction as some people do. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And I think it's really important to state here that um, when we're talking about asexuality, it's about sexual attraction mm -hmm. and it's not about celibacy and, you know, the act of sex or abstaining from sex. It's, you know, and again, then there's a spectrum. There'll be some people who are very sex repulsed and, you know, very kind of disgusted, icked off, you know, and really are uncomfortable. But there'll be some people who are ambivalent and there'll be some people who actually, yeah, you know, if they're in a relationship with someone, then great. Yeah, that might be something that they decide to do. And then it has no effect on their sexuality or their asexuality. You know, that is then just an act. Um, and I think that's a really interesting conversation as well, because then it changes, you know, that it kind of really looks at kind of the whole um, uh, conversation around consent and, you know, kind of looking at sex in different ways as well. And I think if we're going back to the aromantic side of things, it also then opens up the a possibility for many people that you know there'll be some people that experience sexual attraction but don't experience romantic attraction and the challenges that those people experience as well you know and this is where I definitely don't have lived experience but you know for it must be extremely extremely challenging for an individual who you know sees all this stuff on in media and films and whatnot that you know a relationship you must be romantic and sexual and all these things and actually an aromantic person might not have those romantic feelings and that must be very kind of jarring and difficult to go through and you know can I imagine be very difficult to build relationships equally the same way as me looking at those films and those kind of rom-coms and all that what I would consider nonsense but I recognize it's important for some people <laughs> um you know that um I, I don't I don't necessarily relate to it and you know I see that people are sexually attracted to one another but it doesn't necessarily have any relation direct impact on my experience of the world I don't know what you think about that Ryan yeah I think no I think all the points you made are, are, are like just yeah as, as you said before they're just exactly sort of bang on right that that everyone is an individual everyone experiences things in different ways and having a sort of identity in the community you can be a part of is just kind of a way to kind of group and live sh sim people with similar shared life experience that you can relate to and there's always going to be different uh, people with slightly different experiences within that and that's why I think people get so seemingly get so confused when people, when people are asexual, but uh, still want to have sex or enjoy sex. And again, I think it goes back to, as Sam said, that idea of you might not understand it. You might, but you, it's just something to accept. Like, 
and also as you're saying about uh, aromanticism as well that uh, it, as you said it must uh, again not having sort of lived the experience of being uh, of having sexual attraction but no romantic attraction it must be an incredibly hard sort of situation to be in with a sort of mass sort of media in that sort of direction that focuses on and connects romantic and sexual attraction and i think for a romanticism it must be even sort of harder because there's even sort of less spoken about it with asexuality and uh, a, a romanticism is seen as rather somewhat parallel and there's sort of a shared community because people often have similar sort of feelings about uh, or uh, identify as both or as an aspect or a identity within both aromantic and asexual spectrums but there's still less spoken about and less sort of a spotlight given to aromanticism and which I think will make it even more difficult for people to uh, to find those identities within there. I know for me being able to actually learn about asexuality and aromanticism was absolutely vital for me it was so important to me but it took so long because there was such little platform which is why I think it's so important we have sort of weeks like this that do kind of put a spotlight on so that other people can maybe find out about themselves a little bit earlier than sort of I did and go through less sort of turmoil than than when you kind of have to wait a long time to kind of go oh actually I fit to that rather than seeing something and be able to go oh that that is something that I relate to and kind of growing with that and kind of being able to be part of that community from a sort of young age and yeah I think that's it's really good we're able to have this sort of conversation and answer these sort of questions because generally it doesn't have a spotlight shown on it It, they're the sort of questions that people often I think want answered but don't have anyone to ask so yeah, it's good to be able to talk about that. I was going to ask you about that, actually, Ryan. Um, I think we, I think we both came out around similar ages. I was, I think I worked out. I was nineteen twenty when I realised I was asexual. Which, yeah, you know, comparative to perhaps other sexual orientations, is quite late. But I, I was similar to you, Ryan. There was nothing about it and you know I I had no idea of knowing that this was my oh no oh, I think my internet's really bad at the moment yeah it was, it's shot through a little bit but it's regained composure now okay amazing I'll go again <laughs> um yeah, when I was discovering that I was asexual, there was a lack of resources. And even mm. before that, before I was yeah, 19, I'd never heard of the term. So it, yeah. it, it's absolutely crucial that we start to, to kind of have these conversations from younger ages. And I know when I came out, I was desperate for queer people, I think, to talk to, to try and find some sort of I think guidance is what I was looking for and someone to kind of recognize an element of similarity in my experience with their experience and someone just to help me navigate this kind of scary place that I didn't I didn't have a language for myself my experiences Um, I was just wondering you know if if that was the same for you Ryan I've certainly found it difficult to find other AIDS people so you know the fact that you're here is extremely exciting and almost a novelty (laughs) 
You know what I mean? It's, it's rather novel to me as well. It's, it is a rather small community and it is kind of not often that you kind of feel that like you cross paths with people of that same, uh, yeah, of that same identity. And I, I, I've had very similar experiences to that. I only, I, I only kind of realised I was asexual when I was nineteen, and again, it was because I didn't have the language to kind of, I identify that and, and speak about that. And for me, it was almost by chance. I had queer friends, and so would follow on Instagram. I followed a bunch of sort of LGBT accounts and uh, and just reading things. And one that kept popping up in my timeline was a was a asexual account and I was like oh this is really interesting I'm really supportive of this stuff and this is this interesting I've never heard this before and then after a couple of days I kind of like of reading this page it kind of sunk in for me a bit and I was like wait wait that that sounds a lot like me that, <laughs> and it was all it was so liberating being able to find that and that was actually one of the reasons I, I know I said in the interview when I was uh, uh signing up for this role uh, to to you guys was that I wanted trying to try and create an environment where other people can find these things out earlier because as you said there's no real platform for it to find this information unless you kind of stumble across it or are supported. And I think for me the uh, the, the most telling part was when I told one of my best friends who's bisexual and I said I, I, I've realised I've found this where like I, I've uh, realised I'm asexual and then said this is what it means this is what the term is and he's like oh that makes a lot of sense and we kind of just carried on with, with our real and had I and I wrote a piece about it in for university last year just reflecting on my past experiences growing up that there was so many opportunities that if I had the language or if I had the term growing up that I would have been able to quite easily identify oh I relate to that that is is, is a part of who I am and like there's so many of those sort of moments and sort of signs. And I know that I would have gone through a lot less of sort of a struggle. And at that time, if I had a sort of term to put to it, like, I think for me, the most uh, telling part of that was when I was, I first went to university and I was, I was really struggling with my sexuality because of some of the people I was living with were, there was a lot of pressure that I've written on me. So, so you haven't had sex before. And I was like, no and it was the first time I'd kind of been abrasively sort of challenged to that and with someone almost talking about it as if it was an issue or something sort of wrong and that was the real sort of time where I really sort of shut down and struggled with who I was in that aspect because if I had a term to kind of say that well no because this is about me it wouldn't have mattered if I was or not it shouldn't be an issue and, and there's a massive sort of issue of ta toxic masculinity or that sex has such a sort of pivotal role in it and in and is used in a pivotal role to kind of, as we spoke about before, about being sort of uh, misogynistic and uh, basically saying promiscuity is, is such a negative trait while highlighting it and uh, sort of making it a, a, a sort of high, like a massive quality in men. And that sort of environment, if I just had that term, I felt that I'd have been able to kind of better step back and not be that sort of struggling that hard with, with, with who I was, with the part of who I was. And it, I think, is 
really important that we give those resources out young and make sure people are able to think because ultimately there is a fluidity within sexuality. Things can change. I don't know what my future holds. And it's still distressing when someone says, well, will you ever? And it's like, well, I can't ever say yes or no, but it's still not nice of you to ask because I'm saying this is, this is who I am. And things are always sort of subject to change, but it doesn't detract from who you are in that moment and who you identify as. And that I think is a sort of really important aspect of it as well, that if you are young and find this sermon, see it sort of relates to you. And then as you grow up or at different times in your life, something else applies and that is just as okay. Like that, that is perfectly sort of normal and fine. And, but those sort of conversations I think need to be had earlier and those sort of resources need to be available so that, as 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 Peter said, we're both sort of nineteen. When I think on our FVH one hundred and one, uh, I think the average age was around sort of fifteen of people, not necessarily coming out, but having an understanding of their sexuality. And yeah, I think it's it is it's, it's also really cool to have someone with a shared sort of experience in that. And like as we said, there's there's a sort of smaller asexual community. Or, or as a wider asexual community, but it, in terms of actually uh, meeting and sort of talking and uh, finding people properly, um, to, to have two of us with very similar shared experience, I think, says a lot in a way. And I, I, I kind of feel as though I'm like smiling on the inside, just because I'm like, wow, that is so similar to my story, my experiences. And it's kind of remarkable. And, you know, how many other people must be feeling that, you know, like you, I was in my second year of uni at this point. So to and from the university buildings, I would just exactly the same as you, Ryan. I'd have like little things from the past pop into my mind, situations that I was uncomfortable with or, you know, kind of instances I couldn't really explain what was going on. And that would just spring to mind. And it would kind of, it was all these little puzzle pieces that were all pointing in like that same direction of, yes, this is your identity. And yes, you know, this is you. And I think it was really great that I took that time just to kind of navigate mm. that. And I think that's what I needed to, because I wasn't ready to accept it at first. And I think I'm still, <laughs> still accepting it. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, it is wonderful that we then get to share kind of mm. these stories and, and have this conversation because, um you don't you don't get to have that very often and and sam i i'm really curious at this stage you know i feel as though growing up i kind of always knew that i would i didn't want a relationship i kind of told myself a story that um i'm sure you know someday i'll meet someone and you know i guess i'll have to get married and you know just go through some things maybe love is like a feeling that develops after 20 30 years you know and, and there are all these things and so i kind of you know what 13 or 14 year old you know thinks what if i you know have to kind of share to my parents that i have a girlfriend but maybe i won't have a girlfriend you know like a heterosexual person wouldn't necessarily be doing that would they you know so I, there was always so many pointers when i was young that i was going to be queer in some way i just didn't have the language for it and i i wonder sam your experience of being bisexual was it did you see 
heterosexual people around in society and you thought well actually I, I am I am attracted to women but I'm also attracted to men and what am I trying to, I'm trying I'm trying to say you know I I never could relate to that do you feel being bisexual you kind of always knew that you experienced attraction you could see that attraction that you were experiencing like does that make any sense like how was your experience different in some way yeah I think it's uh, as I said um on my kind of bi visibility post like as long as I had those kind of innocent crushes on women I also had them on men yeah. and it was one of those things the jokes that I often make is like from watching Twilight you very quickly realize that you're bisexual or something like you know it's that it's that kind of thing where you're uh, and yeah, and it's it's difficult because as you said with yours and in mine probably to a yours is probably even a lesser extent in terms of knowing it exists. But I almost didn't know that was an option. I didn't know that you could like both. Like as I said, like it's always talked about being a phase, and like you can you can like both temporarily until you figure out one out or something like that. And yeah, so I guess it's very sim similar to your experience in that way where you knew what you felt almost, but you didn't know how to put it into words. And you didn't know that it almost how you felt necessarily existed. So you're just like, oh, I must just have not met the right person. I just might must not have met this, that, and the other. And yeah, so I guess it's kind of similar in a lot of ways where you don't have the words to describe how you're feeling, but you know how you're feeling from a younger age almost. And especially as you said, looking back on moments, you definitely know how you're feeling. And and I think one of the things that I had was just being able to accept okay you can like both so you I didn't have to fight the feeling of liking men as much I didn't have, I could just accept the fact that I'm open I'm more open to the world almost and yeah so yeah very similar which is weird because I I think a lot of people would consider them almost complete opposite sides of the spectrum especially of the kind of uh idea of bisexuality being like basically everyone being additionally promiscuous uh, uh, and so it's probably taken as complete different ends but I think in a lot of ways it's very similar because it almost isn't the option for it growing up and that's what I've definitely had and, and culture in general sexuality is a key part of culture being sexual is a, especially as you said at university um, and even within queer culture sexuality is a, a key part of queer culture so like how I've described in the past of bisexual people don't always feel welcoming queer culture so I'm curious to know do you do you have you had that moment where you don't necessarily feel accepted even within the LGBT community? I think um, firstly, yeah, on that there's, there's a lot of sort of connection and like solidarity even between uh, bisexual and asexual sort of communities in that there is so much similarity of that you'll find the right person and often in yeah uh, as as you said in bisexual with bisexual people it's often that you're the as we spoke about last week there's the idea that people think wait till you right find the right girl or guy and that that is and that's often a sort of thing that's said to to asexual people at the same time that wait till you find the right person and there's a lot of connection and i think definitely sort of solidarity in, in shared experience with bisexuality and asexuality and also across the sort of lgbt community but there still is at times that sort of disconnect i think one of the misconceptions people have about asexuality as well is that because it's about a lack of sexual attraction it means that people can't be like homophobic acephobic to you be but it's still entirely possible and some people still 
do shut people out of, of the community. I have been lucky to have not had too many bad experiences with that. I was only the occasional uh, at university talking to uh, sort of people running one of the LGBTC, LGBTQ plus societies I was in uh, or and then talking about joining and saying that I was asexual the sort of shutdown in the way this person was speaking to me that the kind of cold shoulder I felt I got almost immediately when I said that but other than that it for me personally it hasn't happened often generally the most supporting people have been from the queer community uh, but there are sort of elements I think where that does that does happen I think particularly for people who are more uh, prominent or, or speak more loudly about ace issues and being asexual so we're one of the people I think um, well, for me that I followed that uh, is uh, Yasmin Benoit who's a model and asexual activist and she shares a lot of sort of posts about how, how people treat her and that's not just people externally generally men but uh, also some within the LGBT community and uh, exclusion uh, from certain aspects of, uh, of the community or by certain people obviously it's a minority of people I think it's really important to say that generally the LGBTQ plus community is incredibly accepting and supportive of just individual moments and as we've often said sort of individuals with extreme positions are the ones that are heard the most or speak the loudest but um yeah some of the abuse she's she's gotten in some of her posts and activity really do highlight how this is still an issue for sort of i think that's one of the reasons why the asexual community is very tight-knit and sort of strong and supportive because some people don't feel necessarily completely accepted because of those few loud voices within the wider LGBTQ plus community. I'm really glad you brought up Yasmin Benoit as well. She's um, also a black woman, phenomenal, phenomenal campaigner. Um, so really recommend people kind of go and follow her. Yeah, as you said, like Brian said it extremely well, you know, kind of the, the issues that she raises are, are really excellent, but the abuse and the racism she receives as well is just, yeah, um, pretty pretty shocking but also highlights the issues that still remain um but yeah very very amazing young woman i think um i've, I've had similar t in terms of um you know ryan's experiences definitely um had kind of similar um stories and i think again you know, not to echo everything that ryan said you know but my my experiences at uni were um particularly challenging and I've only just started to look back at this recently and and realize actually these were some very difficult times I don't think I've necessarily processed um in the best way you know I I got to university and I'm not a big drinker anyway it's definitely kind of got elements of control for me you know because I was always nervous about going out being drunk losing control and ending up in a situation that I wouldn't be able to get out of board I would be uncomfortable with and so I always took the decision to go out sober and I don't really like staying out late I don't really like dancing and clubbing but anyway I'd go out because of peer pressure but that's that's a bit of a different story um you know but there, there were those kind of simple elements there within that story that you know I that 
that I was always nervous about what situation I'd end up, how people would, would respond to me, even at that point in first year when I didn't know I was asexual. I was always, I was always looking out for myself in a way of, actually, I don't want to go out to a club and make out with some person because I know that that's really not up my street. <laughs> it's really not something that appeals to me. Um, and then... I joined the kind of LGBT society at my uni who were a fantastic group of people but I did often feel as though actually their events were mostly drinking focused and going out clubbing and actually weren't always inclusive and looking back you know if, if I was to go back to uni again or if I was to be there at uni with the, the tools I have now back then you know I would have been much more able to kind of say you know look can we have some more inclusive events can we kind of consider other ways of socializing rather than just going out and drinking you know there's a lot of people who don't want to do that for various reasons um you know and I think that's a little bit about the the queer community isn't it love a drink love going out and partying and having a dance and stuff and you know I think perhaps then there's also my kind of hang-ups around you know my own associations with clubbing and stuff so take that as you will <laughs> um, but, but you know generally I found the the queer community has been incredibly accepting I've always gone in expecting them to be accepting and open and warm and welcoming I have had a couple of um, people say well what an that's why you hear what you know this isn't kind of your space which has always been kind of shocking um and I feel again now that I've had what six years of of processing my identity my sexuality I'm now more kind of able and confident to say well actually let's have a chat about this <laughs> rather it's rather than certainly at the start it was terrifying prospect and I couldn't articulate anything at that point <laughs> And I think that's actually really key is the idea that at what time in your life you're challenged to these issues. And we again, we touched on it last month and Amy said it really well is when we're talking about the whole percentage discussion around bisexuality. Um, and it, me and Amy both said the same thing. When we were younger, we were just throw out our percentage. It stopped the conversation. We didn't have to talk to these people about this conversation that made us uncomfortable. Whereas now both of us would make the point of addressing that and saying, no, this isn't how this works kind of thing. And yet, I think it's the same with any, all of us as where all of us, and, and even within the youth panel now, we're seeing varying levels of people who are comfortable with talking out about their experiences and stuff like that. And I find that as someone who's maybe a little bit more comfortable than talking out than others, I find it very rewarding working with other people maybe younger members maybe just people that haven't quite found that confidence yet and yeah trying to bring that out of them a little bit as as comfortably as they can be and see and I'm just watching them grow even in the last couple of months that we've um been working together we've seen a lot of members kind of grow and find themselves a little bit more which again is kind of the point and hopefully that will spread to like a wider community mm. Definitely. I mean, you know, speaking more broadly, you know, as a coordinator of this youth panel, we've got so many interesting people and so many people with different areas of expertise and it's a really proactive group of people. So that's what excites me as well. You know, the opportunity that we're all learning, we're all growing. We're, I mean, heck, I've, I had a conversation this morning with a very good friend that really unlocked a couple of things that yeah were apparently things that I needed to process <laughs> you know we're all going through that journey aren't we you know however um comfortable we are with our sexuality or however new of a discovery it is to us we're always learning it we're always coming up against new situations which 
as Ryan says, you know, may cause us to think about these things in different ways. It's always flexible. It's always fluid. I say exactly the same thing, Rowan, and I wonder if that's maybe a bit of a problem that we're kind of saying, you know, well, who knows what's going to happen in the future to indicate that actually maybe it will disappear. But but anyway, <laughs> I, I say exactly the same as you, you know, and I think I think it's it's really nice to be having this kind of a conversation with with both of you where we're open and flexible and talking about you know that well this is where we are today and you know in a couple of months things could change we could develop you know we're all flexible we're all adaptable people i think it's always it's always nice sharing these spaces isn't it and i think that's the sort of important sort of side of that is that it's sort of your perspective in that sort of moment and as as we've all said we both have, uh, have spoken about it as our identity and the fact that there is the potential for fluidity doesn't affect who you are it doesn't affect that part of you and it will never remove that part of you even like uh even you know, with examples of people finding their sexuality as they sort of get older it doesn't necessarily negate the sexuality you identified as when you're younger it doesn't make it any less valid and i mean I think that's one of the things that um, asexuality has always kind of brought up for me, the sort of validity of every unsexuality, regardless of how long you may identify as that. With generally, a lot of people identify with it forever throughout their lives. Some people will change, but regardless of what that identity is and whether it changes or not, it is valid. And, And you as a person having those feelings and having the identity are valid for that. And I think that's something that really I found was just really highlighted when I kind of became a part of the asexual community for the first time, when I was first reading those sort of Instagram posts about what it's like to be and what it, what it means and that sort of being valid and or, or you being valid because of who you are was a really important aspect of that. And I think that, again and what we were saying about being a part of a sort of wider sort of community within the sort of youth panel and uh, from all sorts of different uh, sexualities different sort of gender background or different genders and different backgrounds all of that just highlights to what a brilliant environment it can be for development and and understanding more about ourselves like as Richard was saying you're finding out and opening more doors almost every conversation you have, you can learn something about yourself and having environments where you're comfortable and able to do that is so important because if all you get is toxicity or hostility, it's going to be so hard to find out who you are and learn about those parts of who you are. Whereas in these sort of environments, which generally the LGBT community as a whole is that sort of really positive and inclusive and, environment that creates a sort of comfortable space for everyone when you have those spaces it it is just wonderful for for you as a person and for the people around you and as as Sam was saying it's wonderful to see other people going through those sort of same journeys and being able to see it in yourself it's just yeah it's, it's great that we're able to create that community and it's really great on a personal level having that within having an extra aspect within that within the youth panel and I think that's a really good way to end, to be honest. Ryan, you've put like, really good ways to end on the, both the last podcast. It's like, both times you stop speaking, I'm just like, okay, well, that's a pretty good place to end. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so if you, if you want to hear more of conversations like this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts from, I believe. Um, and any, if you want a more day-to-day uh, running of the FEH Youth Panel and FEH in general, it's at FEH Youth on both Twitter and Instagram, as well as at FEH Tweets for the main Football home First Homophobia page as well. Um, but that's about it for this month's episode. We'll see you again next month and I'll see you both again soon. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, if you want any inf- more information, you can find us at www.footballvershomophobia.com. We're also on Twitter, um, at FVH Tweets. We're on Facebook, and you can just search Football versus Homophobia, you'll find us. <laughs> <laughs> and we're also on Instagram, at football underscore V underscore homophobia. So yeah. I'm sure you'll be able to find us there. And use the hashtag um, FVH2020, and uh, we'll see all of the stuff you post. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And uh, see you next month. Bye. Bye. Bye.